we have a mix of barrels as well. So half of our barrels are a number four char, the other half are a number three char, but with a toast. Um, you're, you know, because you uh, guys hate consistency, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. We try to make everything as complicated as possible <laughs> so that we don't remember how we did anything. <laughs> Can't scale anything. Yeah. <laughs> This is episode 267 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. Before we start the podcast, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Dick Stoll, master distiller for Stolen Wolf and former distiller for Michter's, passed away this week on August 13th. Dick was responsible for the glory days of rye whiskey coming out of Pennsylvania around 30 plus years ago at the legendary Shaperstown, Pennsylvania. He was trained by C. Everett Beam in both the Beam family and historical Pennsylvania styles, and Dick served as the master distiller of Pennsylvania Michter's, where he also distilled the famed A.H. Hirsch bourbon. Michter's closed its doors in 1990 and was picked up a few years later by Chatham Imports, where the decision was made to move it down in Kentucky. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the Stoll family. Buffalo Trace is moving forward with its $1.2 billion expansion, that spans every part of production. In this past year of loan, they've erected three new warehouses and filled them with barrels, joining the already existing four new warehouses that were constructed last year that are now full. And another three are already on the way, each of them holding 58,800 barrels, which costs around $7 million to construct and $21 million to fill. The distillery has also installed four new cookers, which doubles their old volume, four new fermenters to add to the already 12 that have been in use since 1933, a new cooling tower, a new high-speed bottling line, and more to come. And this year, the Kids Cancer Alliance is hosting an online bourbon auction called Concert for the Cause. 100% of the proceeds will benefit the Kids Cancer Alliance's programs for kids with cancer and their families. The Kids Cancer Alliance relies on this event as its largest source of individual donations each year. And big ticket items up for grabs is a bourbon pool where you can win one of a hundred bottles in a package, plus an online auction featuring Weller Foolproof, an old Forrester collection, and bottles of Pursuit series that have been donated by the People's Champ. And lastly, a whole barrel of Blanton's where you and seven guests can go and pick your own barrel. The auction opens on August 20th, and the live broadcast will be on August 22nd at 7.30 p.m. You can get bidding now at thekidscanceralliance.org slash concert. Or you can text CONCERT2020 to 243725. Now moving on to bourbon release news. Traverse City Whiskey has been releasing barrel-proof editions of its bourbon and rye whiskey for years. But this week marked the first time they unveiled a barrel-proof take on its Cherry Whiskey, also known as the American Cherry Edition. The cherry harvest in northern Michigan comes around once a year at the peak of summer. And cherries are taken from the orchard straight to the distillery so they can be added to the whiskey where they rest for around three days. And due to the short steeping process, there is constant attention to the batch and sampling it at almost every level to make sure that you achieve that perfect hint of cherry. And the barrel proof expression this year is offered at 110.2 proof with an SRP of $79.99. It will be available at the distillery. And for today's podcast, what do you think it's like to put everything on the line to see if one of your experimental barrels will produce a whiskey that the whole world will enjoy? Well, that's a question that Tim Pearson and Grant McCracken get to answer on today's podcast. 
It's a story of government lobbying and a lot of experimentation, but ultimately finding an identity in whiskey that's producing amazing results. And Chattanooga whiskey is one that you're going to want to know about. With that, enjoy today's episode. And here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. If you've been following bourbon for a while, you might find it comical to see the Van Winkle line and the Buffalo Trace Antique collection and the Four Roses limited edition small batch, you know, be priced, you know, in a certain SRP that does not really capture the true demand. And I've been getting a lot of interest from national reporters lately about the kind of the hoax that is the bourbon SRP. And some of it's the distiller's fault. A lot of it's the distributor's fault. But at the end of the day, it's the retailer who puts the price tag up in a store and makes the decision to market up whatever percentage they market up. Now, what am I willing to pay over SRP? Well, recently, I spent probably 20, 30% more uh, than the SRP suggests for something like Wild Turkey 101. Uh, I've spent over over SRP for, for bottles of Willet, uh, bottles of um, Heaven Hill, like Parker's Heritage. I mean, I've spent stupid money on bourbon, don't get me wrong. But for the for the basic everyday bourbons, man, I don't want to be spending any about I don't want to spend more than 20% over SRP. Now, if it's a kind of like a mid-tier limited edition, I might be willing to pay 40% over SRP. But I think that's a question that all of us have to ask ourselves is like, what are we willing to spend over the suggested retail price? Now, I tell you what, I'm giving the retailer the big fat finger who's got a bottle behind a a glass case and it says $2,000 underneath it, or he's got something, he doesn't have a price tag on there, and he's like, yeah, make me an offer. I mean, that kind of stuff is just hokey, and it doesn't do anybody any good. And all the retailers who are doing that are getting called out constantly on Instagram and other forms of social media, so I think it's a bad move to be way overpricing anything on bourbon. But still, there's that fundamental question of like, what are you willing to pay over SRP? And it reminds me of a story when I was in uh, when I was in high school and we had these, we were raising Chester hogs at the time. And I had this, uh, I had this opportunity to buy this Chester and I thought he would just really change the um, dynamic of our, of our herd. Well, I was on one side of the auction and my father was on the other side. And we were ended up, we were bidding against each other. Didn't know it. He didn't know it. I didn't know it. But come to find out, we were both willing to pay $400 for that pig before we ever even saw like what the demand for it was or the value of it was. In our head, it was a $400 pig. So I think that's what I want to start doing from now on. And that's why I've been doing what I've been doing on the YouTube series where I'm tasting things and price points. I'm going to start looking at bottles of bourbon and say, you know what? You're a $35 bottle of bourbon. Why don't you join my liquor cabinet? And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, go check out my YouTube series where I am doing all this cool stuff. And today, Thursday, launching the Bourbon Women's Symposium, a live stream tonight at 6 o'clock. Go check it out. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. 
And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean, instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan back in our official recording studios today talking to a whiskey company that kind of caught us by surprise a little bit. We had gotten one of their meaty samples in the mail. And you know, it's one of those things that, that always happens to us. We get meaty samples in the mail and we're like, here we go again. Oh God, here we go. <laughs> you know, you're like, we're grateful and gracious that people send us stuff. Uh, but yeah, a lot of times it's not good. And to our surprise, you know, and we're like looking at it and we're like, oh, it's just not going to be. And then we tried it and we're like, oh my gosh, you yes. know, and it's, and it's super exciting because, you know, we grew up in Kentucky and there's so many good distilleries here, but you know, it's, with allocated products and all the popular with bourbon, it's harder to get Kentucky stuff. So we're really excited to have like some good guys out of, you know, the state of Kentucky doing some great things in the whiskey, whiskey business. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that we want to look outside of the state as well, because as we start seeing a lot more distilleries start coming up a lot more, age product getting out there as well, it's going to start changing the minds of a lot of the consumers out there too. And so we're really excited to be able to introduce one of the distilleries that we have kind of grown to love a lot. You know, we've put out um, a review on Whiskey Quickie before that we really enjoyed it. Um, we've talked about it. We put it on a bunch of social media. So we want to go ahead. And today we'll be talking about the Chattanooga Whiskey Company. Choo-choo. Now, yeah. I was waiting for I you know. to bring that one out. Every, <laughs> every time I think of Chattanooga, yeah, it's 
just goes straight to choo-choo. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So let's go ahead and then... You're stuck with it. Yeah. It, it, at least for today, at least. You, you know. can make t-shirts, so you're right. We're, we're going to stick to whiskey. Yeah. We'll, we'll let trains be trains. Yeah. <laughs> you are right across from the train station. We are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we look at it. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. All the time. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today on the show, we have Tim Pearson. He is the founder of Chattanooga Whiskey Company, as well as Grant McCracken, the head distiller. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you yeah. for having us. Appreciate Thank you for driving up. A lot of times we got to drive to you. And so uh, <laughs> we appreciate you coming here. We got some good bonding times. Yeah, that's all, totally. Nice. Seeing, yeah, that's what it's all about. You finally get a chance to really connect on more than a whiskey level, hey, right? Yeah. Like, hey, um, what's more than what are you doing this weekend, right? You got talk about your past your history it's mainly art just ar- it was just arguing about music on that's the way pretty much that's, it. That's, that's what it was 90 percent of the time <laughs> which way do you what, lean on what, what, what kind of what's your genre i of mean choice? we're the same we age. actually yeah we overlap a lot um yeah we're we grew up in the 90s so we're in our late 30s and and uh we're you know children of the grunge movement so yeah you know along with that comes you know pearl jam nirvana and then uh Classic rock, a lot of a lot of classic rock. It's all kind of like within that, really. Wh- who we think had the most impact? It's kind of that we were arguing about the top fifty list and yeah. who's in the top fifty. Yeah. So well, who's your top five then? Do you, can you have we have or let's say top top one or I, two? I think we're gonna, oh, wow. this, this is where the argument comes in because uh, I think so. I I grew up. Uh, I have an older brother, and we were both musicians and playing uh, playing you know, rock music in, in, in our, in the prime of the grunge era, uh, and being a a drummer, more of a drummer than a guitarist. But, um, I really gravitated towards kind of, uh, I guess the the, kind of the, the top, I mean, the top five are pretty easy for me. You know, of course you got, I was a huge Pearl Jam fan, huge Nirvana fan, Soundgarden, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, oh, Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. Alice in Chains. I mean, I, I you could go on and on and on. I was somewhere where the other day, and uh, Tonight Tonight came on. I was like, man, I haven't heard this forever. Yeah. It brought back so yeah. many memories. Yeah, like seventh grade dances. And then, and then we get into like the argument where uh, you know, like, where does REM fit into the mix? They you know? don't. I mean, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> they don't. Case yeah. closed. Right. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. Yep. It's yeah. the end of the world as we know it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I grew up on uh, I grew up on Nirvana and Pearl Jam. I f- I feel like the Pixies made a huge impact on me when I was growing up. And Built to Spill was kind of where like I built a spill transitioned from from uh, Nirvana into more of you know the late '90s kind of stuff. And more that's in, that's how scene, I grew up. Yeah, at least. yeah, totally. Very so, cool. So we're already kind of talking about your passion history. <clears throat> let's let's dive into it uh, a little bit more. So kind of talk about really you know how you all grew up and stuff like that. I mean, you had a musician's background, right, Tim? So kind of talk about like what made you do that and kind of what like carved your path to the career where you said, Hey, maybe whiskey's for me. So I don't, I, I, I'm not sure that being a musician, um, I can really connect the dots very easily. I think, uh, where I connect maybe can connect the dots is, um, well, I guess there was an originality there. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed writing music, you know, I mean, I would, uh, I, I had this little, I don't tell the story ever. Oh, you've never even heard this, but when I was growing up, um, more stories to go back on the <laughs> yeah, ride home with. Yeah, exactly. We had so my dad was a musician, and so my brother and I got you know musical instruments fairly early in life, you know pre ten, and uh, and so I you know I would keep a guitar near my bed, 
and at and I would keep a boombox with a tape recorder and a microphone connected because I would wake up in the middle of the night with ideas. And I would, as soon as an idea hit me, you know, I, and I would, my parents, you know, slept down the hallway, so I'd sleep with my door shut because I did this often. I would, an idea would hit me in the middle of the night and I would get out of bed and literally just flip the lights on, go, you know, hit record and play whatever this riff was, was or, you know, whatever the tune was stuck in my head so that I didn't forget it because otherwise I definitely would. So I wrote songs a lot that way. And I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't a talented, talented music uh, reader. You know, I was, everything was by ear and it was um, very much uh, just kind of figuring it out, um, you know, along the way by ear. And I think that's kind of how um, this happened. And I, I had parents that were very supportive of that. My dad was an entrepreneur. I was actually working in a, you know, family business for eight years. And so, what was the family business? It was manufacturing and uh, mainly point of purchase uh, display manufacturing. And, um, and it just wasn't for me long term. And But growing up, my dad went from being an entrepreneur to uh, being, being in, leaving the private sector and, and uh, going into 501c3 work. And, you know, nonprofit work. Yeah, and say where all the money's at, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And that, and, and so he really, he sacrificed for something that he was passionate about and then, um, and then ended up going back into, uh, into, you know, manufacturing and, uh, and it just wasn't for me long-term, uh, but he was in ministry for, I mean, all, all the, the nonprofit work was ministry work and that was the majority of my life. So eight years or seven years after working for him, coming to him and saying, you know, Hey, uh, so we're going to start a whiskey company <laughs> was a interesting conversation, but, um, how did you get the whiskey from like, were you drinking it or did you enjoy it? Like, I, I think he probably woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah. Did it, you it, it had, hit, yeah. hit record on his boom box and <laughs> just started talking? I'm going to start a whiskey company. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Like I, I'm not shy about the fact that like it wasn't in my bloodline. Right. It's not uh, my great grandfather well, didn't, right. uh, wasn't a distiller, you know, my, um, and, uh, so it was, it was, um, it was about the history of whiskey in Chattanooga, discovering it at the, at a, at a time where in 2011 it was still illegal. And a buddy of mine and I, um, you know, we're looking at this and, uh, and both of us. So, I mean, Technically, I'm a co-founder, but we're not even getting into that story today. So, <laughs> but we we were looking at this together and uh, said, "Holy cow! How have people not brought that back? How has it not been been brought back?" I mean, Jack Daniels is 80 miles up the road, right? And it's 2011, and uh, we were really excited about it. And Facebook was a platform that was just open. And people could see what you posted, and it was very unfiltered. And that's we I mean, we started with the idea on Facebook with a question: Would you drink Chattanooga whiskey? And that's how it rolled from there. So, um, very much a passion thing. Uh, very, I guess entre- entrepreneurship is in my veins um, because of my dad. But um, good timing and uh, something that to make a difference, to make an impact, to be to do something, to bring something back after a hundred years in Chattanooga was just a really cool opportunity. So it was 
distilling in Chattanooga was illegal back in 2011? Is that- it was. Yeah, it was illegal. So there's 95 counties in the state of Tennessee, and it was illegal in the majority of the 95 counties. And Chattanooga, it's a major markets in there, Chattanooga being one of them, that dated back to 1915. So um, from 1866 to 1915, Chattanooga was one of the larger distilling communities in North America, which is an uh, interesting you know, fact that a lot of people don't know about. Certainly Chattanoogans didn't know about it. And the legislation, you know, didn't know about it, nor did they really care to bring something back that um, wouldn't necessarily, in their minds, benefit them or the community, right? The health of the community. So discovering that was what inspired us. Um, But, you know, you had to be passionate enough and kind of crazy enough to change, to take that on, to change the laws. And that's where the Vote Whiskey campaign came in and all that. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. I want to get to that in a minute because I, f- I feel like we need to bring Grant back yeah. to the story here. So, <laughs> it's so, all good. Yeah, These so, are good stories. <laughs> so Grant, we're, we're gonna, you're, it's your turn to lay on the couch now and kind of tell us about your childhood and how you grew up and got into whiskey too. Yeah, so actually, um, I, I like Tim, diverged paths on in life. Um, I went to business school uh, at Indiana University. And... Uh, my, I really didn't have a plan coming out of business school. So what do you do when you don't have a plan coming out of business school? You go into consulting, which is what <laughs> I did. Um, so I was a consultant for five plus four, five years. and uh, Consulting what, though? Uh, business consulting. So I worked for Accenture and Prativity, which are both knockoffs of, of Anderson Consulting. Um, so I did a lot of supply chain consulting. I did some inventory management consulting. I did... Uh, risk auditing, all pretty boring stuff, right? Sounds exciting. Yeah, a lot of spreadsheets, <laughs> a lot of PowerPoint presentations, a lot of, um, you know, uh, presenting to, to boards information that, you know, they already knew, they just didn't have the, <laughs> the, the people to do it themselves. They the needed time. it in a pie chart. Yeah, really exactly, it, yeah. Then. So I was homebrewing on the side for, uh, in college and through my consulting career. And at a certain point, I realized... I'm, I feel like I'm probably better at this homebrewing thing than consulting, which wasn't saying much, I will tell you that. Um, so in, uh, what was it, 2008, I went back to school for brewing. I left the consulting world, business world, went to school for brewing, uh, got through that, landed my first job in a large craft brewer uh, in uh, Boston Beer Company is where I worked. I'll just say the name. Uh they make Sam Adams. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So I worked for, for them for almost six years. I worked in production. I worked in recipe development and re, head brewer at research and development uh, in their Boston location. Um, and on the side then, I was learning how to distill in my own time. I, it was a, you know, we did a lot of high gravity brewing, a lot of barrel aging stuff. And it just became like a little side uh hobby for me again. So just like brewing was a side hobby when I was uh, in the business consulting world, distilling just became a hobby from an educational perspective. So I started, I did a distance uh, course in distilling and uh, serendipitously like three weeks after I was looking back at the emails, actually three weeks after I finished this distilling course, got my certificate in distilling. I get a call from a good friend of mine who's in the distilling industry and he called me and said, these guys from Chattanooga, they're, they're here at the distillery and they're looking for a distiller. Didn't know if you'd be interested in talking to them. And I said, well, yeah, let's, let's see what happens. And then I uh, made a 
trip to Chattanooga and uh, here we are. So that's 15 years compressed into two minutes, but um, that's, that's essentially how that. Uh, what was it about distilling that made you like venture off from brewing? Oh man. I mean, um, what I started to realize in distilling uh, was that, you know, a lot of the assumptions we were talking about earlier uh, today, I feel like there's, it's in it groups of a third. So a third of distilling is just like brewing. A lot of same um, essentials. Um, the concepts are very similar. Fermentation, uh, you know, managing or, or selection of d- different raw materials, very similar. Um, Yeast, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah, there, there's a third that's the same. There's a third where actually your assumptions and all the rules are turned absolutely upside down. Oxygen's one of them. Uh, uh, bacteria is another thing that, you know, just too thrown out there. And then the other third is just a completely different new way of thinking. And that's that extra step of distilling, you know, throwing it through a column, purifying it, um, concentrating certain aromas and characteristics. And the barrel aging piece is somewhat similar, but there's, there's, uh, some factors in there that are just new, uh, new points of discovery. So third, a third, a third, third is, same stuff. Third is, is, uh, challenging your assumptions. And third is a lot of new things. And I think that combination of, okay, this isn't too far beyond my comprehension. I can learn something new that totally changes the way that I think about beer and whiskey all together. And I, it was just really interesting to me. So it turned into, it was a hobby at first and turned into, you know, I like the long-term focus of this. It's something that I feel like I could do for a very long time. So to say, when, cool. when you were undergrad and, and doing this in school, like, were you like the most popular one? Like, hey, this guy's got, he's making his own beer over <laughs> here. Let's go over there. Well, I was, you know, it, it didn't, it took me a while to actually really get into it. And that was right outside of college. I, I felt like I was, I was the guy, you know, really interested in the, in the process, but not in getting into the guts of it in college. And then post-college, I had a really good friend um, in, uh, who worked with me in consulting, and we both got into homebrewing together. And it was like every book we could get, we were just gobbling Same it up. With it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where the true, uh, a lot of the joy comes in it for me, is all those little details, figuring out, you know, what, how to bring it together and the seek of perfection in a way. So you got a favorite kind of beer? Um, you know, people ask me that a lot. I feel like it's the same with whiskey is when a style is done well and it's the nail is hit on the head, anyone will do. If, you know, if you have a classic American Pilsner or a German Pilsner all the way to, you know, uh, a Rauch beer um, or a barley wine, I'll, I will drink anything you put in front of me as long as it it is, you know, an excellent example. I feel like you can you can take a lot from any particular style even ipas yeah no, I'm <laughs> yeah we were talking earlier before how we were like oh IPAs, uh. what do you what do you think about the whole craze of like the the hazy ipas and stuff that's going on right now and people are like putting all kinds of like fruit and stuff in them and like i mean come on give me i mean be real like what do you think um you know i think the every industry works in trends and they there's a certain element of the industries even in um distilling and making whiskey you gotta, you do have to kind of go along with what the market is interested in, or else you won't survive, right? Um, but there is a certain amount of um, kind of gimmick, uh, gimmick, yeah, yeah. and and 
ADD of just, you know, focus on the fundamentals kind of thing. Um, if you can get the fundamentals right and bring an evolution of a particular style that's elegant and interesting and truly has a nice story and profile, I'm all for it. But yeah, at a certain point, there's things on the fringe that will probably be gone in a matter of months, you know? That's how it works. All right, Beer Pursuit coming to a new podcast <laughs> near you. Sorry. Right. So, so, Tim, I kind of want to take it back into a direction that you had mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, talking about how it was illegal to distill at some point. And you talked about some like a, a voter pass that had to happen. Kind of talk about what that did and what was the catalyst that sort of made that movement happen. Like, were you a big proponent behind it or like were you just like, hey, like this thing got passed. Let's go ahead and start moving. No, I would. I, th I do believe that uh, myself and co-founder were the catalyst. We uh, we wanted to bring distilling back to Chattanooga for the first time in a hundred years. So, did you grow up in Chattanooga? Like I did. I was okay, born cool. and raised. Awesome. Know. The only time I really spent away from Chattanooga for the most part was you know when I as it was college. So, um, so yeah, the when we started when we you know when when Chattanooga whiskey was founded in two thousand eleven. Uh, it was about telling the kind of the story of the history of distilleries in Chattanooga. And it was about how we, you know, eventually wanted to distill, bring distilling back to Chattanooga. But the laws weren't, I mean, people didn't know about the laws for the most part. And that really goes across most of the state of Tennessee. With the exception of 2009, there was a bill that went through and that opened up a handful of counties in Tennessee. And that was kind of the beginning of the craft, uh, you know, distilling movement in Tennessee in 2009. Um, Nashville was one of the uh, areas that was approved to distill back then. But uh, for the majority of the state of Tennessee, you know, it still was um, prohibited. So in uh, Chattanooga being, you know, kind of when we came along a couple of years later at the, at the center of, of that, the attention, uh, center of attention of the whole craft um, distilling movement, because we wanted to make it legal in Chattanooga. But the only way that we could do that is if we made it legal really in the rest of the state of Tennessee. We thought it was only going to be a county like, hey, why don't you just, the 2009 bill, why don't you just adopt Ham Hamilton County, which is Chattanooga, into the 2009 bill? And uh, it just wasn't going to be that easy, even though we still had to go through a county vote. So uh, we created a campaign called the Vote Whiskey Campaign. I say we, that was me and my co-founder that created that. And the reason that we created Vote Whiskey is because people just didn't know enough. They, they, they weren't going to do the research on their own. It was very difficult to get the messaging out there. So we just needed something creative and loud to, uh, to, to galvanize community support. So um, we started that uh, shortly after we were founded. And uh, the laws didn't change until 2013. It was spring of 2013. So, so you founded a company basically trying to create something that was already it was going to be illegal and just like hope down the line that this was going to come to fruition basically we did uh but what was what was um it was exciting and we were you know young and passionate enough uh, to to take it on and uh and we believed in the mission and we had a lot of community support but what was kind of interesting about it is uh, in 2011, shortly after we found we were packaging together our raw materials because we wanted to sell Chattanooga whiskey. 
But the only way we could sell Chatterjee whiskey is if we sourced a product. And so there were not a lot of, uh, there were not a lot of third party manufacturers out there or contract manufacturers out there that supplied whiskey in 2011. And we, we, you know, found a handful and one of them was LDI, which became MGP. And, um, and we had samples shipped to us and our favorite samples. And we didn't know anything about LDI. We knew nothing like, about hey, it's them. It's good whiskey. That's, yeah. that's legitimately, we got the samples and we were like, holy cow, this is really, really good whiskey. The samples we got were three years old. And, uh, we said, this is the whiskey we want to start with. So what do we need? And they said, you have, you know, our minimum is 20 barrels. You have to buy 20 barrels from us if you want to purchase any whiskey at all. So, um, we basically scrounged up uh, $50,000 of mez- mezzanine debt from from friends of family members and just locals, basically, a couple locals. Um, one in particular that I'll never forget is a huge part of why we're here. But uh, we came up with that money to buy 20 barrels. And then we packaged the labels and the glass and you know everything together. And it was about telling the story of the history of Chattanooga whiskey or, or whiskey in Chattanooga, right? We wanted to honor tradition in Tennessee, um, or specifically in Chattanooga. So we had this look and vibe that we were going after. We launched in April of 2012. Um, and the launch was great, but we had to be really transparent that it wasn't made in Chattanooga. (laughs) Right. We had to tell people because we, because of our mission, our mission was to bring it back. So we really didn't have anything to hide because of that. And, uh, and we got, you know, the community, we had more that supported, the, uh, but of course, telling people that this is called Chattanooga whiskey made in Indiana was not easy. So we had to uh, we had to kind of fight that battle while while we were you know fighting the the underground battle that would that hadn't come to the surface yet, and that was that it was illegal. Yeah, I was about to say because at that point it was a good thing that you went honesty first because we already saw the repercussions of people that didn't do that at years down the road right yeah. talking 2014 2015 time frame yeah it was it really important for us to be transparent and um again because of our mission and we didn't have any examples to go off of of people that weren't necessarily uh trying to hide the truth because it was still pretty early in the in the bourbon boom you know and the craft distilling movement so we didn't have a lot of examples to look at and say, oh man, they really screwed up. Like we need to make sure that we're really, it was just that our mission was to honor the community and bring distilling back for the first time in a hundred years. Interestingly, we ended up, uh, so when, when LDI was acquired by MGP, they came to us and said, hey, uh, you know, we've, we've found suitors for all of our, our liquid assets and uh and you know we had basically it was going to shut our supply off because we were only buying 20 barrels at a time so we had to come up with the money to buy enough barrels to last us for or as many years to change the laws raise the capital build a distillery come out with our own product this sounds just yeah, like a like a try res- doing that calculation. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, I was like, I was like, you mean you gotta you gotta respect the hustle here because this is this is something that any way that you would try to put this down on paper, it just sounds like doesn't make sense. It's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like you're you're just trying to like you're building the airplane as it flies, right? You're trying to figure out exactly like how this is gonna work, and so you know. You, you were able to scrounge up money, but were there other ways that you were bootstrapping this other than just like friends and family? Like what other no, ways? Yeah. No, it was, it was a uh, truly was, um, 
I, you know, my, uh, my dad always had a you know solid job because he's a he's a good hardworking man and um and so our family was always taken care of but we never it was never a dollar of family money or anything like that it was all it was us trying to figure it out and get you know get the get the money as uh, honestly as we could wherever we could find it and it was it was it was passion driven constantly and um and so we came up with this you know, we built this pro forma that said that we're going to do all this in four years. And that in four years, it was going to, you know, we would need precisely 1200 barrels to do all this in four years. And, uh, so that's, so that's what we did. We bought 1200 barrels from, I basically went to, uh, to LDI and I said, Hey, can you give me some time? Because the product, their, their whiskey was being sold or they had it under contract, but they had, you know, but we had, we were the little guy, right? And I was like, Hey, you know, protect the little guy here and see if you can give us a little bit of time. So they give us a couple of weeks and we came up with the money, which I think at the time was three quarters of a million dollars, um, to buy 1200 barrels. And so I don't know, I can't remember the exact calculation, but it was like $550 a barrel. So try finding, you know, original LDI barrels at yeah. over at north of three years old. Now, could you store these in Chattanooga legally? No, or no, no, okay, nope. So we had to. So we were uh, originally going to Bardstown. We were going from LDI uh, to, to Spirit or something. Yep, that's okay. right. Yeah, and then we switched a when uh, when a bottler when laws changed and a bottler opened up in, uh, in near Nashville. We moved from. Uh, strong spirits down to Nashville, a co-packer basically in Nashville. And then, um, and then of course we were with them until the vote whiskey, uh, you know, campaign was successful. And even when the vote whiskey campaign was successful, the, you know, the, the, we were still at the beginning of the roller coaster ride and it was, you know, I, I, we thought the laws were going to take a few months to change. It took a couple of years to change. We thought that, you know, after a few months, we'd build the first distillery. So it was a, it was a couple of years of changing laws and then two more years to build our first distillery. We were actually fortunate that we were still the first distillery in Chattanooga in a hundred years. And it was kind of funny how it worked out because we established the Chattanooga Whiskey Experimental Distillery in March of 2015 and the last distillery shut down in Chattanooga in 1915. So we say making up for 100 years of prohibition yeah. because of that. Well, and it's perfect timing too, because like Chattanooga is kind of doing a renaissance as a city. Like yeah. it was a huge industrial like juggernaut back, you know, back when the, but then it kind of got abandoned. Yeah. And now I didn't know this till I went there. You have like the world's fastest internet or something yeah. crazy. <laughs> and like, you're like, what in Chattanooga, Tennessee? And because I was going there and there was like all these young people it was vibrant, tons of great yeah, restaurants. Yeah. Uh, everybody was just super friendly. I was like, what is going on? They're like, well, we have the world's fastest internet. There's a lot of young companies, tech companies moving yeah. here because of the tax advantages of Tennessee. And so it's kind of like perfect timing for you guys too. That momentum helped us a lot. Yeah, who would have guessed that we went from the first uh, train to cross the Mason-Dixon line to the fastest internet in the uh, in the world um, or country. But um, we uh, there was a lot of momentum. There was a lot of startup momentum, and that definitely helped us. I mean, there was a there were a couple of uh, venture funds that had started up in Chattanooga, and so there's some there's I mean there's so many great people in Chattanooga, and it's a very uh, charitable city as well, and very passionate community, you know. And so bringing this like historical manufacturing element back, you know, reviving it in Chattanooga was something that was of interest to a lot of investors. And so we were fortunate in that regard, but we had to change laws to get there. So like during the campaigning, 
we were kind of lining up investors, you know, one at a time, but they weren't going to put any money in until the laws actually changed. So then the laws changed, and then we had uh, from 2013, 2014 had had a bit of uh, you know co-founder uh, turmoil, and then in 20, and then it took you know in 2015 is when you know uh, we established finally got our uh, got our feet on the ground, if you will, in terms of just being a distiller. And so in in, in you know I'm not going to lie, from 2011 because it took from 2011 to 2015, and this whole time we were advertising Chattanooga whiskey made that was actually made in Indiana. After the laws changed, and then it didn't because the fact that it didn't happen right away, there were there were a lot of questions like, are these guys for real? Are they actually going to make something? Did we just support something? You know, for this, you know, for uh, the sake of um, really passing a bill to pass a bill. Pass, yeah, nothing, nothing actually happened, just for the sake of marketability, if you will. And uh, so, anyways, um, we uh, we were trying to build something much larger than what we actually built in 2015. We wanted to be one of the largest craft distilleries in the country because we felt like that was the opportunity that we had. And when we built a you know less than 3,000 square foot experimental distillery on Market Street, that was a pretty big uh, change in plans for us. And it became about um, just planting our feet and figuring out who we were gonna be when we grew up. And, and it was during, it was before, it was like right before we started construction, we found this, you know, this small location on Market Street. And that was when I was like, I'm not going to be the distiller. And we didn't have anybody. <laughs> we didn't have anybody on the, to this be the distiller. So this goes back to the very beginning. we like, oh, we got this far. We don't know how to distill. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, it's illegal. We don't know how to distill. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. We, we, I love it. This yeah. is like, this reminds me of like a story like Elijah Craig burnt barrels or something. Like you couldn't <laughs> yeah. make this shit up. Like, <laughs> you know, no, it's like, true. You're going to look back a hundred years from now and then we're like, Remember Tim? He uh, started a company. It was illegal to distill, and, <laughs> and then he didn't know how to distill himself. Yeah. So yeah. they're like, "That's sad. Just folklore bullshit." You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then we, you know, that's where we found. Um, that's when we found. We were fortunate to find Grant. And what was cool about finding Grant is that um, our our philosophies aligned, because Chattanooga was, was we we were already kind of established as, uh, you know, we were kind of we were trailblazing, right? I mean, to change laws and. So why why do all this just to uh, Grant and I were talking about this earlier and Grant you know said uh, basically pull out tracing paper and trace over eighteen sixteen you know that was that was MGP and why do all that to just pull out tracing paper mm-hmm. and so um, but we but we loved it but we loved that we loved the path and we liked the product you know so we didn't want to we didn't want to just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never existed. And and so when Grant came on board and helped us build the experimental distillery, and of course uh, Grant, yeah, I want to hear Grant's side. Like, yeah, how right. did you sell this dream to him, to Grant? Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So the uh, so my my good friend gave me a call, uh, asked me if I'd be interested in talking with these guys, and actually one of the first things I went online just to look around. What is what is this thing? Chattanooga. I used to stop there when I was a kid on the way to Florida. I don't remember it being that cool of a town. And uh, I start to see pictures and, and the landscape. I remember the landscape just being gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it you know, foot of the Appalachian, you know, 
contour. It's just an amazing area of the country. Uh, and I come across this, uh, one of their like old websites or ads that just said rules are good, change them. And that was their vote whiskey campaign kind of sub motto. And, you know, we were talking about rock and roll music earlier. I was like, if that isn't the most rock and roll thing in the world, I don't know what is. And so, and that was my first kind of visual and, you know, statement of what they were about. And I thought, well, if that's what they're about, I'm on, I think that's really cool. I need to go talk to these guys. So I made a trip in to Chattanooga and saw the same thing you guys saw, you know, the, the, uh, just the, the whole town is, has undergone quite a bit of change, but it's, it's a, it's a change that, that kind of, uh, takes the best of, of what the town is all about. It's about the outdoors. Um, you know, we were outside magazines, best town in the country, best town ever, like two or three years, something like that. Um, so there's a lot to be, uh, cherished in that, in that area of the country. And yeah, there's this kind of youthful renaissance in the town. Um, and from, from the standpoint of, you know, selling, selling the idea of the distillery, I just got that, the feeling that Tim was open to changing the rules again, you know, to, to start the company founding it off of principles that said, um, rules are good, honor your tradition, but, but we can evolve. We can move past these things and try to keep moving on and building on the things we love. So, uh, there was kind of a natural amount of respect and kind of rock and roll at swagger on those two things that I just thought was really cool. So when you guys got together, Tim, were you like, this is what I'm looking for? What, this is the style of whiskey I want to make. This is this, or was it more like, let's lean on him and let him figure that out for us. So when, when Grant, so we did a uh, phone interview and, uh, what I really enjoyed about that interview is that Grant was just extremely thoughtful and uh and he i felt like he chose his words wisely and he really it wasn't you know it was it's just who he was as a person and um and when grant you know grant's very much a, a perfectionist and i could i could feel that in that conversation and we needed that i mean a like first of all we couldn't distill or brew ourselves right so let's just start with the foundation but we needed but our company needed when we planted our feet we needed somebody extremely trustworthy and somebody who could, uh, who could, you know, really commit to making, you know, a great product. And so I got that from Grant. And then when Grant and his wife came down with their, uh, at the time, they just had uh, one child, their son. And, um, and, uh, my wife and I had a daughter we've got now both have two kids and, um, and we spent a weekend together. Uh, it just, it felt right. It felt like, um, it felt like Grant was it's just what what Chattanooga whiskey needs. We were a, I mean, from 2011 to 2014, it was like the wild wild west. <laughs> I mean, we were just all over the place, you know, just trying, just you just know, just trying to make it work, just yeah. trying to make it work. And that's what the vote whiskey campaign was all about. And um, it was just a dream, right? And we were just trying to tell this story and get people to believe it and buy into it to change laws. And now we, it's, it was kind of, you know, it was time to grow up. 
And that and that's not an easy thing to say because I don't ever want to grow up. <laughs> I mean, I don't. But but it was time to grow up and and then uh, and we had shareholders. You know, we had shareholders that invested in 2013, and and those shareholders were with us. You know, through some tough times in 2013, 2014, and so they were kind of looking at me, looking at Chattanooga whiskey, going, you know, I wonder if this thing is going to work. And so we had to regear. So so. You know the experimental distillery. Yeah, we re- like. we reset. We decided we were going to do something smaller. It was the experimental distillery. Grant was going to be our head distiller. Um, was that your idea to do the smaller distillery, or was that there? No, actually, it it kind of came together at the same moment. I think we, we, I started talking talking to them as they were envisioning this larger facility, yep. and I'm kind of looking at this gigantic building that was on the list of buildings that they yeah. had looked at, and like. Am I in over my head? And <laughs> I haven't dis- I haven't professionally distilled once in my whole life, you know. And uh, so when when they told me they were thinking of starting an experimental distiller, I was like, ah, okay, kind of a relief, you know. At 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 a certain point, you want the biggest and best for whatever company you work for, right? But one foot in front of the other kind of mentality, this was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to the company because I feel like we had two years from 2015 to 2017 to figure out exactly what we wanted to make. And that's what the experimental distillery's whole concept was all about is let's figure this out. Who do we want to be? Again, you know, Tim mentioned the tracing paper. We didn't want to just take a traditional bourbon you know, put a sheet over it and trace over it and say, oh, we're going to just change this little bit and or or some sort of remix of 1816. We, we wanted to look at every piece of the process under a microscope to decide, you know, what we liked, how it was going to pull as much flavor as possible from, the proce- from that part of the process and what raw materials and what process would yield the best whiskey possible. So. Yeah, and I and I absolutely followed Grant's lead on that. What was cool is that when Grant came in, is that he did adopt the rules are good, change them philosophy instantly. And so that's how when the okay, so we were under construction, the experimental distillery together, and when we finished construction, it was time to distill our first batch. We kind of looked at each other, like, <laughs> all right, like what <laughs> are we gonna, pushing what, the trigger? What are we? Yeah, <laughs> who's yeah. pushing the button? Yeah, what are we gonna? What are we gonna make? And uh, we decided our first batch should be uh, an 1816 knockoff. So that was our very first batch at Experimental. And then from there, it was about, okay, what is rules are good, change them. What does that mean? And Grant, in Grant's background, he can talk to this uh, obviously a lot more than I can, but it was an intro- it was uh, an introductory of malt into bourbon. All right. So it was like, all right, let's not alienate. Let's it's, we are one of our trademark slogans is whiskey to the people. Let's honor this path and let's honor that this, the, the community support that we've galvanized under this product. That's a traditional straight bourbon whiskey. And it's a great bourbon by the way. And it's what we love, but like, how can we, how can this translate into rules are good, change them. And that's where Grant had ideas about how he wanted to develop that, that I didn't. And that's where I really leaned on, on him and his expertise. And, uh, and we were talking about this earlier on the way up, but we, we're not going to sit here and tell you guys or anybody that these, the first two years of experimental distilling was like just a buildup to the perfect recipe. It, it wasn't. I mean, we, 
we started off with nothing, you know, but 1816 in barrels. So we didn't have any high malt. We didn't have any Tennessee high malt in barrels. So we were going off of white whiskey and flavor profiles of white whiskey to figure this out. What do we like? What do we not like? We're, we're deciding this over white whiskey before it goes into a barrel. We, we tried stuff all the way up to 100% malted. All of our corn was malted. 100% of our corn was malted. So when it comes to what we've truly tried, um, introducing malt to bourbon, we feel like, and that we, we say that we have the, like truly the only standalone experimental whiskey distillery in the country because of what we went through introducing malts to bourbon and even malting corn and the you know hundreds of malts, dozens of yeasts. So we went through this and we had stuff that came off that we didn't like. Frankly, I mean, and, and that was even some of the 100% malt stuff. And so we, were, we wanted to do 100%. We we're like, man, all of our corn is going to be malted. It's going to be amazing. But it didn't work. Until you taste it. Like, yeah, oh, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, you're like, that sucked. It, but it didn't work. So, that, so anyways, that was part of the, the path to, to what is Tennessee high malt today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, two, two years to figure it out. There were, you know, as you can imagine, you, you said it earlier, you're building the plane as you're flying it. We're trying to figure out what, you know, what gives us a little bit of lift and uh oh we're kind of veering off in the in the wrong direction let's let's change paths and and push over another direction were y'all just doing it yourself you didn't have any consultants like or any one kind of guiding you along or so we we initially had i've never met larry eversold but larry um goes back in the industry he's mm-hmm. yep. something of a legend uh and I was fortunate enough to to know someone in the industry. Uh, Brian Sprantz at New Riff worked with Larry. Um, Brian is one of my very close friends. Um, and the folks at Vendome who built our still and the folks at Vitoc who helped operationally with engineering considerations for, for our larger distillery. You got to understand this industry is just very, um, for lack of a better word, altruistic and, you know, although you're paying them money to build you stuff, they're very open, Mm -hmm. open source on, on what they have seen and what they know works. So operationally speaking, we've, I've personally gotten a lot from those, uh, those folks, uh, and, and some others, but, um, creatively if recipe development wise, we really tried to keep the blinders on from a standpoint of, of building what we thought was going to make the best whiskey. And that's where it came to just looking at every single part of the process, you know, and it ended up coincidentally and, and, uh, I guess, you know, ironically that the foundation of the process, it, we thought where it all started with malt and foundation of grain became kind of our foundation as a concept. So we, we call our version of straight whiskey, Tennessee high malt, because we feel like it exhibits something a little bit, you know, on the edge of the style of the style. Uh, so we, we kind of consider it our malt forward approach to bourbon. And that's where we, we started on barrel number two from barrel number two on, we kind we always tried to kind of put our high malt glasses on and, and say, here's, here's what we're, uh, here's what we want to, you know, bring to this tradition. What, uh, what, what was it about malt that made you land on that? Was it just cause it's different, it's unique? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. 
Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. What was it about malt that made you land on that? Was it just because it's different, it's unique, you know, because there's not a lot of bourbons, you know, that kind of celebrate yeah, the malt. Do, they, there's something to do like malted barley, but I mean, like other than that, yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot that put a huge chunk of it into it. Well, I, th- I think the, the biggest point is control, creative control and recipe and flavor control. So w- if you look at, uh, you know, I get a call a week or at least a call every couple of weeks from a grain supplier and they say, I can provide you uh, rye or corn or malt. And my biggest question is, okay, What's up? What's up with the malt? <laughs> and there's so many maltsters out there. There's hundreds of maltsters who all approach their craft. Maltsters. I didn't know they were called it. Oh yeah. That. I mean, yeah. There's hundreds of. There's a craft maltsters guild, and they're all approaching their craft just like a lot of great brewers and distillers are, where you can, you know, malt is essentially you're sprouting a grain and then you're kilning it to stop that process, and you you have a choice. You can kind of build a foundational flavor in that malt, or you can roast it, you can caramelize it, you can smoke it, you can roast it to a level that uh, exhibits chocolate-type flavors, you can uh, caramelize it to hundreds of, a a spectrum of hundreds of different levels that are almost like a paint palette, you know? So when it came to, to having a selection of raw materials, malt gave us the greatest number of choices to choose from. And I could go to a maltster from Canada, or I could go to a maltster just around the corner at Riverbend, who we use for a lot of specialty products over in North Carolina, um, who, who they're, they're trying to figure out new ways of approaching malt as well. So, I mean, um, when it came, comes down to it, we, we thought we had the most amount of control for flavor. And it's not saying that corn isn't a foundational element for our whiskey. As Tim said, you know, if we malted all of that corn... For us, not to get too specific, but it, it, it turned in a little too earthy. The corn became the focus and these nuanced uh, flavors of whether it was caramel or honey or, you know, a fruit character in there that you're trying to 
uh, heighten or just tweak a little bit, it all kind of got thrown out of balance by uh, malting corn. But corn as a raw raw material, as a uh, unmalted material, is a, an amazing canvas to showcase malted grains uh, in all of their spectrum. So when we when we you know started um, laying barrels down at the experimental facility, over those first two years, we laid down a hundred different barrels. And or approximately a hundred different barrels. And uh, when when it came time to deciding, okay, we're building this larger production facility in 2017. Not to jump ahead too too much, but in 2017, we're working on our larger facility that was going to make not a barrel a week, not a barrel a week like we did at Experimental, but now 25 up to probably 60 barrels a week we can we can make there. So we have to decide which recipe are we going to settle on. So we went through everything. We went through every single recipe and there's hundreds of malts that we've tried from in this two year period. There's dozens of yeasts. There's uh, dozens of different types of barrels. We've tried a bunch of finishing barrels as well. Anything and everything is on the table for what makes the best whiskey. And within the framework of straight bourbon whiskey. Exactly. So we, although we did do a lot of malt whiskey, we did some rye malt whiskey as well, but we took this kind of broad approach to what we were calling at the time. We were like, well, what do we call it? Tennessee high malt. Okay. What are we making that's, that exhibits Tennessee high malt the most? And we tasted through all of them and, and barrel 91 was the one, you know, it was the one that had the right level it, it kind of tipped our it tipped its cap to, to tradition in just the right way and it and it looked towards the future for us in just the right way so that's why we picked that particular so risk. it took you 91 barrels to get there but i mean like how how aged was at that point that you're like okay like we can we tell that this is this has got Heading some in the right direction future yeah. potential in it and stuff like that too yeah i mean that recipe at the time i think was only probably around a year old yeah so we had to put some you know, our confidence in kind of our <laughs> crystal ball, you know, you pull it Absolutely. out. Going like, back to that gonna... pro forma. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there, there's every step of the way. You know, we look back now and we're like, Jesus, what a risk at every single step. But we, I think you just had to believe in your ability to kind of think on your feet build the plane while it's flying and figure it out as you go. And I think that's what we share in common from day one is we can figure it out. We, if we spend enough time thinking about it, we're going to get it right. We had it. We had a conversation about when we built the experiment, like when we started running our first batches off of the experimental distillery, if we should just focus on a recipe or a couple of recipes versus doing something new every single week. And that was not an easy conversation because it's an investment Mm -hmm. at that point. And this was one of the riskier things that we did. We had to say, so there was this, okay, the conservative way to go about this is we're going to, we're going to produce a few recipes and this is going to be, we're just going to get settled at the experimental distillery and we're going to try and, you know, make a profit someday off of it. And, you know, and then 
eventually at some point, we don't know when, We'll go from there. We'll, I we'll, want to know these shareholders are dealing with it. <laughs> they got to be like, <laughs> they're, yeah, I mean, very they're, they're like, people. thank like, you. This yes. sounds <laughs> like, <laughs> sounds like a terrible idea. Sounds like hog shit. <laughs> Give me my money back. Uh, th- that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I'm happy to share. <laughs> no, I'm they, um, they must but, have had a lot of faith in you. Cause I mean, I really had the same exact questions as you're going through here and you're like, you had a hundred different barrels you're that like, you were creating. I'm like, I would be like, whoa guys, let's get it together first. Let's like, I'd be like, let's create We, we had three years of trying to get this law passed. Now we're like, or whatever. Well, you know, what's interesting is none of them come from the industry. None of them, you know, and uh, there was a level of trust. There's a, there was a massive level of trust there. And it was um, that, you know, we kind of reconfigured our pro forma based on, okay, now we have an experimental distillery and are we going to generate the revenue we say we're going to, or are we going to, you know, make a good product, all that stuff. And, uh, and Grant, and we didn't have anybody looking over our shoulders saying like, you're going to make 1816 or you're going to make a few recipes. We had, I personally had some industry advisors that have, you know, that have been there and done that, built brands, sold them that said, you should lay down as much whiskey as you possibly can. That is the recipe that you are currently selling. And we did the opposite of that, which was, which, which that was. You're like, uh, no thanks. That's not a- <laughs> I know you're really smart, <laughs> yeah, but we're not going <laughs> to. So when we decided, so Grant, well, actually, it was I remember like it was yesterday. Grant, Grant said, Tim, is this going to be? Is this our future? Is the experimental? And we didn't even call it the experimental whiskey distiller back then. We called it the Tennessee Stillhouse. Is the Tennessee Stillhouse our future? Is this 3,000 square foot location? What we're doing here, is, is this it? And that's fine if it is. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. But like, just, you know, we need to know. And, um, and I said, I don't think that it is. I think that we, this is a stepping stone. I think this is, the, this is where we figure out who we are and uh, that our shoes are a lot bigger than this. And he said, okay, well, I think we need to explore. And it was very much a... Okay. You know, like I'm, I'm going to follow your lead on this because I do think that someday we're going to look back and we're going to go, man, I hope we have a recipe somewhere in here that we'd really, really like. It only took us 91 so, barrels, but we like, got it. Yeah. We, we do say, I mean, we only have eight more to go. We better, hopefully, the, <laughs> hopefully one of these are yeah. nine more to go. Yeah. It is very humbling to say that, you know, it took us 91 tries to get it right, but we, we feel like we did. And I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm fortunate to have lived in a, in a research and development environment for a few years in my previous career where you do realize that trying things with slightly different variables just makes a pretty big impact. So I, I don't think we could have rationalized doing the same thing over and over again and not learning something from every day that we were there. So, you know, if we would have spent two years working on five recipes, those five recipes would have been good, but they wouldn't have evolved in in the way that we were led to these two products and and a bunch of other products so our our larger production facility now you know we're running about 25 barrels a week um there currently and we've scaled up close to about a dozen recipes up to that location and we can thank the experimental distillery for those others as well how did you figure out through the process like how are we going to recreate this magic right like we no, this is barrel 91. There's some spreadsheet somewhere that says this was tweaked to what? This was the formula, blah, blah, blah. How do we, how do we get it? Yeah. How do we go 3X on this? That was, yeah. that was my question too. <laughs> go ahead. 
And I never had a very good re- response for it. Well, you uh, know, I think you, so, I think you said it's going to be different. You know, yeah. we got to figure out. It's just you know, you're going from a hundred gallon pot still, three one hundred gallon fermenters, a hundred gallon cooker, to a three thousand gallon cooker, four you know three thousand gallon fermenters, and a column still with a you know hundred gallon doubler. Yeah, I mean the we we kind of embraced the fact that it would be different. We knew that even a column still, for instance, is going to yield. Uh, a slightly cleaner product, let's say. Um, and uh, a pot still, just by its nature, is a little, you know, not as sanded down as you've, as you've called it. And we knew for experimental whiskey that was great because it has a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity. But for an everyday whiskey, our signature recipe that we were looking for, we knew that a column still was going to bring us what we wanted. So as much as we looked at Barrel 91 and said, this is great, we love it, it's going to change a little bit, but it's, it's high notes. It's top notes of, you know, a little bit of fruit, a little bit of caramel, a little bit of, of honey character, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of everything. And we'll find some ways to pull that flavor out of every part of the process again and again. That's where our focus became is, is more on, um, scaling up, trying to replicate that magic, but realistically in a different environment. I don't know if that answers your question, but no, no, no. I think you're there. And so let's let's fast forward a little bit here because I want to kind of know exactly. All right, so you've got the production facility. You're putting down barrels, and you know, one year, two years past, you're tasting whiskey, or you're like, guys, I think we did it. I think we did it. Like, what was what was that blind? <laughs> I would say, right? Yeah, this is we where this is where. So Grant made me comfortable at the experimental, and then it was my turn to make him uncomfortable at Riverfront. Absolutely. So. When we established Riverfront, um, we started laying down Barrel 91 recipe, and then we scaled up a handful of other recipes. Uh, but it was, but the focus was how's Barrel 91 going to evolve compared to what we selected as the actual Barrel 91 out of Experimental. How's it going to compare? And uh, you know, Grant is very much at throughout that process. He's very much like, look, I'm not going to. Like what? Like I don't even really want to taste it until we're ready to release it. Like because it's just going to evolve. You know what I mean? And and when we when it comes time to release it, okay, it's time to taste it. Whereas I'm way less patient. Yeah. And I'm I just, would be I, I, every two I was, months. That's, that was and that's what I was doing. And uh, and you you know our like I said, going back to experimental when we really didn't have anything experimental aged to go off of, and it was just white whiskey. We were we were making decisions based off of what we liked in white whiskey, and um, when we started laying it down at Riverfront off of the column and the and the doubler, uh, we we both thought, man, this is really good white whiskey. It was super flavorful. I mean, some of the most flavorful white whiskey I've ever had. It was great, but you know, we didn't know what it would do in a barrel, and. Um, so I, I would drill in occasionally after a few months and then uh, after a year. And, you know, it wasn't ready. It wasn't ready Barrel yet. Barrel 91 had like 10 bottles left. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All yeah. The- it just, it wasn't ready yet. <laughs> and, uh, and we got, so when, when I remember, I remember specifically when it hit 19 months, I remember dr- like ha- pulling a sample at 19 months and I hadn't pulled a sample in a few months. There was some time between a year and that and that time, that 19-month time period, that it turned a corner. And I remember pulling this, you know, pouring the sample out, nosing it and being like, 
okay, that actually smells really, really good. And then tasting it and feeling like, wow, this is so good and so further advanced than what I had been tasting up to a year, a little bit after. I wanted to tell him about it. And he was just like, I don't, I don't even want to know about don't it yet. Don't even, yeah, like I'm still laying it down. And I went to uh, our uh, our sales director, John, and he tasted it and he was just like, oh, you know, that's really, really good. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to start blind tasting people on it. It's 19 months old. I'm going to blind taste again. I'm just going to blind taste people on it against anything. But you just say like, I'm going to go get a second barrel real quick just to make sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Point. Well, that happened too. I think we, t- <laughs> we tapped into quite a few, but I just started, I took those 100 ml samples and I just started walking into account, like I mean, with I mean, taking you know, uh, grabbing just to some. Clarify, of, this is the this is the stuff we laid down at Riverfront, not the original right. barrel yes. ninety one. Yep, this yep. is the stuff that we laid down. This is the the barrel ninety one recipe that we were laying down as our flagship at Riverfront. And so I was taking nineteen and twenty month old samples from uh, in in hundred ml bottles that you know they were not labeled, and I was inviting in top accounts, uh, bar managers, you know, professional bartenders, chefs. I mean, people that had what I believed were excellent palates. And I was blind tasting them on it against some of the best stuff in the industry. And it was regularly winning. And I would just ask, you know, I would ask them to rank it among the the whatever the samples they were they were uh, sampling against, and then guess the age, and they were wrong. They were they they you know they ranked it extremely highly, and they they guessed the age wrong one hundred percent of the time. They all felt like it was you know six to ten somewhere between six and ten years old is what I got from all of those blind tastings. And this wasn't three blind tastings. This was probably thirty forty blind tastings. To unique individuals that w- that were from the industry. You needed a lot of confirmation. <laughs> I, yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Tim does look for confirmation. I do. It's I one do. Of his strengths. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so that at that point, I felt like I, I went to Grant with these results, and it was just me going out on my own and getting these results. He's like, now you got to try it. Forty people. Have yeah. Tried it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he. I think that process actually. Um, I would when he when he said I'm going to go out and start tasting people blind. I was like, oh my, what? <laughs> I cannot. We're not ready. We're not ready. <laughs> abort. Abort. Please don't do this. Uh, and it it completely turned my, uh, you know, it it really helped with our distilling team's entire confidence. We internally, you know, there were moments where it was at probably 16 months, I think, where I was looking at our team like. I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be ready when we really want it to be ready. And uh, it turned a corner and Tim started doing those blind tastings. And I was part of a few of them. And they were, uh, it was one of the coolest things, one of my uh, fondest memories of the entire process. But the one thing that I remember time and time again, and it kind of leads on to the whys of everything is people start to ask, why is it so good? So, so young. And it really reinforces all the work that we that put gonna in. That's going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> Caramel well, flavoring. Yeah. Flavor packs. Big drum of it. <laughs> glug, glug. <laughs> Two glugs. Um, we, uh, so it's a really great opportunity to start to teach people about the foundational elements like malt and even the auxiliary really supporting acts like our, uh, like our fermentation process and our, 
selection of barrels from our Coopers and the the entry proof and the you know the you want to talk distillation about proof. Yeah, I'd love to. Talk I mean, about a little bit of that. Talk about your entry proof, distillation proof, what kind of barrels you use, just so we can char level. Oh, yeah, everybody, totally. let, let people geek out for a minute. So um, at its foundation, it's it's appropriate that you know when we're speaking about the foundation of Tennessee high malt that we talk about malt a lot up front, it's a straight bourbon whiskey. So 75% corn, the other 25% is divided between approximately 25%. Um, we say 25% or greater in this particular recipe, Tennessee high malt is right at 25% of, uh, rye malt in the highest quantity. So around 12, then, uh, approximately seven ish of, of, uh, caramel malt a particular type of caramel malt, and then what is called honey malt as well as the third ingredient at the rounding up the last 6%. So those three malts and that corn combine together um, to really create, the the corn is a nice sweet canvas. It gives you a nice kind of caramel popcorn, I think, backbone to the whole profile. And then the rye gives you a nice uh, rye malt instead of raw rye gives you a heightened kind of baking spice character. So we attribute a lot of the baking spices like cinnamon, nutmeg, you know, deep kind of allspice character to the rye malt. Caramel malt, um, I like to say, enhances a lot of the barrel character because caramel malt is caramelized. They've stewed it and then they've roasted it to caramelize the inside. If you break open the malt, it's glassy on the inside. It's been caramelized and it's almost like this amber color. It looks almost like, you know... uh, um, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like, looks like the whiskey. Um, so, uh, that's the inside of, of caramel malt. And then honey malt has got this nice, sweet floral element, a little, um, tart when you taste it. And it brings in kind of a, a nice, uh, honey note. And they call it honey malt, not because there's honey in it. And they call it caramel malt, not because it's actual like caramel put in it, but they've, they've, in the malting process, in the kilning and roasting process, they've created these flavors that are indicative of those, of those types of ingredients. Um, so those four grains together create this broad spectrum of flavors that have um, characteristics that, when put into a barrel, really synergize well with the barrel character. Now, backing up into terms of fermentation, the next step, fermentation... A lot of the industry goes pretty quickly, two, three days, sometimes maybe four days is the kind of general vibe in the industry. We usually go right around seven days, um, six to eight, so average of seven. And uh, that long fermentation for us builds a lot of that complexity. Over the first two, three days, most of the fermentation is done. Most of the alcohol has been produced. Um, But during the fermentation process as well, there's not only alcohol production, but ester production. So alcohols and acids coming together to create aromas that are indicative of fruit, you know, apple, pear, uh, pineapple, uh, you know, the list could go on. And our fermentation process, when it hits around four days, it's kind of undergoing a little bit of a secondary fermentation process from four to seven. And um, the industry tends to call that transesterification. So in the in our distillery, we've got open-topped fermenters. We we let the the bacteria, the native flora of, of our environment, come and kind of have an influence on them. And what happens is uh, bacteria like Lactobacillus will come in, 
uh, create their own acids and a little bit of their own alcohols. And what happens there is they start to change the existing esters and existing alcohols into other compounds. So you create new fruit aromas and new fruit flavors and all this other complexity on the back end of the fermentation. And we want that. We feel like, um, that is a, that creates a more nuanced product. Along with that, we, we temperature control during that seven day period. So temperature controlling, um, allows us to not necessarily highlight just one particular ester or esters overall, but it subdues ester formation a little bit to highlight the malt character, which obviously we're all about. So you can definitely get the malt out of it. That's yeah. for sure. So ester, ester yeah. suppression a little bit, uh, malt, um, kind of showcasing and that covers our first two parts, you know, the grain selection and fermentation. Um, then we go into distillation. We, we distill at a relatively low proof, um, for the industry, I would guess, uh, we're coming off our main still at around 123 and off of our doubler at 133, 134 in between that number. Um, and what that does is it preserves all of that fermentation nuance, that, uh, malt complexity in our product. And, uh, you know, if you went too high, you wouldn't taste any of that stuff. If you went too low, it probably would be a little bit gritty and a little too, you know, rough around the edges. So we picked that 133, 134 as the final proof uh, prior to dialing it down into the barrel. So our barrel entry proof is right around 115, I would say anywhere from 114 to 116. Um, and we we do occasionally experiment even at our production facility with slightly lower, slightly higher entry proofs. But that 115 proof we found is a great balance between um, extracting the wood-based flavors from the barrel and then also extracting more of that sweet caramel undertone from the barrel. And then one final element uh, is we, we have a mix of barrels as well. So half of our barrels are a number four char, the other half are a number three char, but with a toast. Um, you're, you know, cause you uh, guys hate consistency apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We try to make everything as complicated as possible so that we don't remember how we did anything. <laughs> Can't scale anything. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, 50% of them, fortunately each batch is around eight barrels. So half of them, four of them go into number four char, the other go into a number three char with a toast. The toasting process as your listeners probably know toasting is like searing a steak, you know, it's usually less than a minute, high temperature, you're lighting the barrel on fire and you're creating some, some, some caramelization reactions there, but you aren't going very, very deep into the, the, um, the barrel from an extractive perspective. You so said, you said toasting, you mean charring. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So charring, charring is, is less than a minute. Usually, uh, toasting on the other hand is, in our case of our toast profile goes around 35 minutes and that's like slow roasting. So it's going deep into the, the barrel, creating a lot of interesting extractives, you know, the coconut kind of black tony flavors, deeper vanillas, caramelization reactions that go very deep and you're creating probably a greater number of them as well. Um, so we found that the combination of these two barrels, barrel types just yielded a complexity that we couldn't replicate any other way. And 
it tipped the cap to our original recipe from the standpoint of toasting and charring that original barrel 91. And it, it gave us the complexity that we were looking for throughout our process. I could go on and <laughs> mention our, uh, our, uh, Solera finishing for 91 and unfiltered casks, single fermentation. But if you guys, I've been talking a lot, I want to make sure if you have any questions. What's cool for, for our team is, is that every time we, um, so we have a 4,000 gallon white oak Solera barrel. That's, that is, you know, 91 is a Solera barrel finished, uh, bourbon. So every time they load in the Solera barrel, they'll pull barrels from the warehouse and then they'll thieve them. And we, we, you know, the team, whoever's available, we'll go back there. The distilling team obviously is key to this process, but some of the other team will come back there and they'll try, basically we get to try a bunch of single barrels. And because the batches are half four char and half three char with a toast, you really get to see what the specifically what the difference is because it's the same recipe. These barrels have been put away at the same time. It's astounding. I mean, when you get to try a product that is the same recipe that is, you know, greater than two years old, that is and if half of, you know, you get to try barrels that let's just say, for example, and this is most of the time, this is the case, four barrels four different single barrels, same recipe, four char, versus four different, you know, four barrels that were put away at the same time, same recipe, but are in a three char with our own toast profile on there. Just Hu- night and day. Night and day. Huge difference. Unbelievable. I mean, we're talking, oh, let's just throw, let's just say within bourbon whiskey, 20 plus percent different between these two. Um, what we've kind of noticed is that these three char with a toast put off a very confectionary note versus the four char. Four char is definitely more has, we've seen it to be like more in the classic, tra- yeah, yeah, more classic, more traditional Bob's basic bourbon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like, but here's the thing is, is when you have we, like occasionally, you know, people will be, will be given a tour or, you know, a friend from the industry will be in, they'll try it. And there are people that, you know, there's a it's, it's amazing the difference in palates and consumers. Because there's a lot of people that just want a traditional bourbon whiskey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll have people that will just automatically gravitate towards the three char with the toast because of how confectionary and flavorful it is. And then you'll have people that'll just automatically gravitate towards the four char because they just want that classic bourbon taste. So when you, you know, the, the, the art of marrying them together in the Solera barrel um, it's just something that, you know, we're really proud of because of how different it is. And then when you release these, so you have a, you have a 90 proof and then you also have 111 proof. 91. Right? 91. Yeah. Okay. To so, honor barrel number 91. Yeah. Oh. Everything's barrel 91. Yeah. Right. It all, <laughs> yeah, it we all can. And by the way, right. barrel 91 was the last barrel to go into the Slayer barrel. So it, oh, fair. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And so what was the idea of coming out with the, the higher proof version as well? Because for me, that's, that's, that's where my sweet spot is. Like, I love it. I love the aroma. I love the taste. Yeah, you know, it's got look, a great awesome. viscosity. Thank you. Thank you. Like, it's, I mean, it's everything that you get with it. And, you know, I think for me personally, you know, coming into this, you know, we used to be, you know, very proud Kentucky boys, right? Like we wouldn't drink anything else but it. But, you know, coming and finding something that is uniquely different. Yeah, it's such a nice change of pace. That's like, awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, and it's that, that. And it's like, and, and you don't get this flavor profile from pretty much anywhere else, right? And, and that's what I really enjoy about this, that, you know, for me, when I look at my wall of bourbon, I try to figure out what do I want? And if it's like sometimes when I'm looking for something that is a little more chocolatey, a little more like a dessert kind of thing, I actually, I typically reach for this because it does, it has that kind of profile that is just, it's not in your face. It's, but it's, it's, it's just, I don't know. I really, yeah, there's something about there. I love it though. 
it's something you can like some people call it stuff like porch sipping whiskey or something you know like something you can just sit in the summer or just you can chill with it and it's like it's so silky sexy i don't know there's something about it that and but it has those fruit note flavors too and then like i, I get so much coconut out of it that like mm-hmm. uh um i usually don't get you know out of many bourbons we kind of mm, almond one, joy i love that's almond one joys. note that we try to find but like it's it's here and it's fantastic but i like the 91 too because it has has like you said more of those like honey kind of like tea flavors it's real approachable and easy and mm-hmm. it's just it's a guzzler almost like you could you could get in trouble with it because it's so delicate but rich at the same time yeah so uh the two expressions we really we tried to peel them apart of that original recipe and really showcase all that this recipe can be and the way that we did it with 91 is to put it into the Solera barrel. The Solera is a great way for a small distiller, you know, uh, comparatively speaking, small distiller to, to have a bit of quality control from a consistency standpoint. Uh, we, we take a two plus year old whiskey. Once it's reached two plus year old, uh, it tops up our Solera and our Solera is 4,000 gallons. So it, it holds about 91 barrels. Um, and uh, we draw it down about 10 barrels each time. So a little over 10% goes away, makes a batch, and then we top it up with newly mature whiskey. So it's essentially a never-ending barrel, never goes empty, uh, creates a, a lot of complexity over time, but also consistency. So as you can imagine, a 91-barrel batch of whiskey over time is going to create a little less uh, consistency, variability from batch to batch. Uh, but the other cool thing about it is that not only the Solera creating complexity, but it has access to air still. This this tank is made of wood. It's charred on the inside, and it has access to oxygenation. And anytime any uh, beer or wine or spirit has ac- access to oxygen, it can undergo a meta- continue to to change and evolve mm-hmm. over time. Um, so we, we find that it blooms a little bit in there and highlights a little more fruit character on the 91. Um, and whereas 90, whereas 111, what we decided, um, somewhat at the last minute, you know, in the last couple months of, of tasting through barrels was, you know, having an, a nice, uh, six to 10 barrel batch for, for our 111 expression, we found, okay, all of these expressions from batch to batch, it was, uh, just showing us a little different side of 111 each time. So what we decided to do was make it a single fermentation expression. Each one of our fermenters makes right around eight barrels. Let's get all of these eight barrel batches together each time we need to make a batch of cask and let our distillers decide which one has the has what it takes to be cask. So we'll line up five batches that could be cask, line them up, which one is more cask forward gives that rich confectionery confectionery note that you know we feel like exhibits that other side of the the 91 barrel profile and the distillers you know it's a democracy we decide basically the highest number of votes wins on on which gets to be cask so our that's why on the back of uh, our 111 we tell the story of a single fermentation and we we don't filter it as well so it you'll see a little ring of dust on the bottom of there. Um, and it gives you, you know, hopefully a little more mouthful, full, mouthfeel, fullness, and all the complexity that we want out of the, out of that. Everybody loves seeing barrel char in their oh, bottles yeah. though. Yeah. yeah right love on. those floaters. It also, <laughs> it also comes from, I mean, 1816 reserve also had a cask and that was 1816 cask. So 
1816 reserve was a 90 proof. Cask was a 113.6 proof. So, I mean, our uh, historically Chattanooga whiskey has had a a product that is you know considered approachable to the everyday you know uh, average whiskey drinker, and then of course um, a, a cask strength that was that appealed to the you know the more um, the nerds. That appealed, to, that appealed, <laughs> to, us. That appealed yeah. to the nerds. Yeah, to us. there we go. So, it's an easy way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So as we start wrapping this up here, you know, I got one last question to ask, and that is, you know, you had mentioned, you know, lots of different barrels, lots of different recipes, lots of different experimentations. You know, you've got, uh, you know, this is probably one of your biggest flagship products that you have out here now, as well as 1816. What else can we expect to see from Chattanooga in the rest of this year and going into next year, too? So we are, so we launched Chattanooga Whiskey 91 and Chattanooga Whiskey 111 in August of 2019. So we, you know, we haven't even been out, uh, we haven't been out with those for a year yet. Um, so what we're excited about is we have our foundation of 91 and 111, and that's our, you know, our straight, uh, bourbon whiskey foundation, which again, we, we call Tennessee high malt or Tennessee high malt foundation. Next is a Tennessee rye malt. So we are coming out with a true rye malt that we call Tennessee Rye Malt, and that we'll be releasing sometime around Q3 of 2020. And then uh, we will start doing some single barrel offerings, although we're rolling those out more slowly because we want... We'll uh, be the three or four char. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Ooh, Who knows? <laughs> that's, that's the beauty of options. Right? Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. You mingle them all. Yeah, you, yeah, you guys decide. Yeah, you so. go You go exactly. and there's four and you get two and two, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, and, and eventually, so we don't want to have a shelf set that's like 20 products. I mean, for the record, we've done 26 releases in less than three years. Oh, wow. It's a lot. When you come to the Chattanooga Whiskey Experimental Distillery and you sit down at our tasting bar and you, and you know, there's a mirror with, you know, four shelves and you look at the top shelf from left to right, you know, on a, you know, 20 plus foot span is every, every one of our releases from, from when we released uh, batch 001 it's a lot, but we obviously haven't, we're not scaling all those up, but because like Grant said, we scaled up about a dozen of them. We do, we're, we're making plans on what to do with that. Right. Um, and we've scaled up a handful of unique recipes beyond our flagship Tennessee high malt recipes. And the next one, we feel like the next logical step, uh, is Tennessee rye malt and then single barrel. But uh, we're looking at all these other recipes and deciding, you know, they they might make really great single barrels uh, in the future. And uh, we might also do something creative with them in regards to a bottled and bond. So we've got, but, but you know, we're not looking at having like a, an everyday, you know, 12 product shelf set. It's going to be, you know, probably within five or six products. But, uh, but I think we, because of all those other recipes that we've scaled up, I think, uh, in in the next couple of years, we're going to be able to get really creative on single barrel offerings. Awesome. And it was a pleasure for both of you to come on the show and be able to talk about all this today. You know, for Ryan and I, it's a it's really an honor because what you all have created here is fantastic. Yeah. Thank right? you. Thank and you so much. And Thank it's you. one of those things that, as we had said at the very beginning of the show, it's like you get a package in the mail and you're like, here we go again. Here we go again. But yep. there, every yeah. once in a while, you find something that changes your mind and you're like, I can... I want to get behind this. I love it. It's a great product. And, and that's, an even better story. Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> appreciate that. Like, that's Thank you. incredible. And it's like, it's true entrepreneurship, like going in it. Like I've been there, you know, you just go in, you, you wouldn't know if you knew how hard it was, you wouldn't do it, but you just do it because you're passionate about yeah. it. And then bringing your side to it, you know, like let's, 
like, let's manage this. Let's do this. Like, let's refine it. You know, it's great to get both sides of the story. It was incredible. Thanks. Absolutely. And I encourage all of our listeners to go out, get a bottle of, because if you're like me and you're listening to this bourbon podcast, you're probably a bourbon nerd. Try the 111. Yeah. I guarantee you're going to be like, yep, you're going to add it to your bar. I'm hoping we can keep these ones. <laughs> Since you got to keep the media sample. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'll let you take, I'll, I'll, I'll get you a sample here. You can take 100 ml of them. Is that, All right, is that a deal? Is that a deal? Enough. <laughs> Blind tasted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Grant and Tim, thank you again for coming on. You know, I wasn't giving you, uh, also give you one last chance to say, you know, where, where you distributed to, what states and people can go and go and try to find it right now. So Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, Alabama. We did just launch Kentucky, which we're really excited about. Um, and then uh, Mississippi, Kentucky, uh, or excuse me, Mississippi, Colorado, and Texas are kind of next on the list. And then we're just going to kind of drive deep in those markets. We're not planning on uh, being distributed in 50 states anytime soon. We'd really, um, we're just trying to be as methodical as we can about that. Uh, check us out um, at ChatternewWhiskey.com. Uh, you can nerd out on our website. We actually provide a lot of information on our experimentals and there's a lot of good info on there. So I definitely encourage people to check that out and follow us uh, on our social channels. Um, you know, Instagram is chat whiskey and uh, Facebook and, and Twitter. So yeah. yeah. And visit Chattanooga. It's my favorite city. Yeah. That, <laughs> thank you for saying that because we're really proud of the experimental distillery experience. It's one of the top uh, tourist experiences in Chattanooga. And we, you know, we'd still experiment there. We still distill there and experiment there every week. So it is a production facility as well. And yeah. We, we need yeah. to quit experimenting. Uh, I never. <laughs> thanks to this guy <laughs> right help. here. Whenever, yeah. <laughs> it was like, for me, I, I know we've had these conversations before. I'm just like, let's choose something and go forward. <laughs> yep. That's what I like. Well, we try, you know, and there's a whole, that that's a whole nother story about being focused <laughs> versus being, and we, you know, we do feel like we're focused, but we're folk, but we can play a lot within straight bourbon whiskey and yep. American whiskey. And that's, that's, what's your, what was the tagline? The rules are, rules yep. are good. Change them. Yeah. Yeah. Rules are good or change them. I yep, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And then also, you know, also shout out to Blake at Sealbox because I believe you can also get yes. them online delivered yep. to your door at sealbox.com. So again, Grant, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks if for you, having us. Absolutely. And if you like what you hear, make sure you support the show. You can go leave us a review at rate this or rate, rate this podcast.com slash bourbon. You can also support the show, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. And then follow us on all the social medias as well. Yeah. Can you get some good, you know, pictures on social media? You know, you know we, we take back and forth from Instagram from time to time. You know, who's going to post this week? So I get more likes. Anyways, <laughs> It's true. <laughs> no, but. Thanks, guys, for coming. Yeah, uh, thank you. Guys. Yeah, and it's, if anyone has any show suggestions, feedbacks, comments, we love hearing from our fans because this is why we do it. So, uh, yeah, with that, we'll see you all next time. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.